Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week we bring you in-depth conversations with today's leading filmmakers. It's June 29th, 2016. I'm Michael Oldmark, one of the show's producers. Today you'll hear filmmaker-provocateur Nicholas Winding Refn talk about his latest film, The Neon Demon, which opened in select theaters last weekend. The surreal thriller stars Elle Fanning as an aspiring model whose youthful vitality is threatened by the cutthroat L.A. modeling scene. The Danish-born filmmaker joined us last week for one of our free talks, which were sponsored by HBO, where he discussed the making of the film, his influences, and his collaboration with Fanning. Let's go now to their conversation. This year marks the 25th anniversary of the Walter Reed Theater. Over the years, the theater has become a central hub of film culture in New York City, screening new and classic films from around the world and welcoming the filmmakers and actors who made them. In honor of this milestone, we're doing some major renovations to make sure the theater remains one of the best places in the world to watch a movie. We need your help with a crucial part of this process, replacing the theater's screen. The current screen has been in use for over a decade and has shown more than 30,000 hours of film, so it's long overdue for a replacement. We're raising funds through Kickstarter so that everyone can get involved at whatever price point fits your budget. We're most of the way there, but we need you to help us reach our goal of $50,000 by Friday, July 8th at 2 p.m., or else we'll lose all of the money that has been pledged so far. To read more about the campaign and to join us in preserving the historic Walter Reed Theater, visit filmlink.org kickstarter. How you doing? Hi, hi. <laughs> Jet lagged? Uh, no, you kind of like no time zone. No time zone. Um, let's talk uh, Neon Demon, your uh, sexy and twisted and uh, beautiful, uh, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, it's kind of everything. Um, your films have explored obviously a lot of masculinity um, and this film seems like it's trying to explore femininity. Would you say that's fair? I mean, I don't know if I explore it like literally like I'm an investigator or I'm a, um, a scientist trying to analyze the DNA of it. I, I just tend to make films about what I would like to see. And, 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 and in a way live out my fetish what I do. So your fetish here is? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, well, um, there's a, there's a like, there's an eroticism obviously to this film. There's a sens sensual, sensuous quality. Um, a lot of that is through its visuals. Um, do you want to talk about um, your visual approach to this film, metaphorically or otherwise? Uh, well, I had this idea that um, I wonder what it would be like having been born beautiful. Um, because it's a subject everyone has an opinion about. And I had, I believe that, <coughs> that a lot of us are the generation where we experienced the digital revolution, the, the idea that uh, an, an alternate reality is more and more consuming our, our communication, our 
livelihood, how we view the world. And my children, who are starting to become teenagers, are the generation that uses this technology in almost world of normality. It, it's their way of living. But the generation after, I think, that alternate uni reality will become no longer alternate because it will essentially become real. So the mutation of, of what we remember as real and the future of artificial will essentially join one world, become one reality. Does the artificial then become like authentic? In the end, I think that authenticity will essentially become the reality of an artificial I idea. And so I was like, I wonder what it would be like then to be in a world where narcissism is accepted, where narcissism is a virtue, where narcissism is a quality. Because I grew up in a world of narcissism as a taboo. But strangely enough, creativity is all about narcissism and self-indulgence and all those beautiful things they criticize you for <laughs> sometimes is what it's about. But in terms of how I can see the world of beauty in that the acceptance of narcissism is almost an evolution of how we define human beings. That it's like going through a new, a new way. We see it in our political structure. We see it in our, in our current situation. We see it in our philosophical nature of how we define our evolution. And in a way, in the future, beauty will become with the class marks that defines us as human beings. As, and, and to me, that subject was very intriguing because it all started with that I woke up one morning and I realized I wasn't born beautiful, but what my wife is, and I wondered what that would be like. And that gave me the idea to make this film. And, you're, and uh, I suppose you see your children that way too. Well, I'm very lucky that I have um, a, a, a very beautiful children. Uh, and, and my eldest, of course, has asked her mother if she can be a model. And my wife said, uh, not yet. But, uh, <coughs> but this idea of I would like to make a horror film about a teenager in the world of beauty probably comes from that. Something that it's for her generation, in a way. And I didn't know quite how to, to trigger it until I met Elle Fanning. Uh, because when I make films, it's all about who's going to be the protagonist, because that's going to be my alter ego. So whether it's Matt Mikkelsen or, or Tom Hardy, but especially Ryan Gosling, you know, it becomes very much about my, my, my inner mirror. And uh, with Elle, there was no one else who could play the part. So I kind of had gambled on the film because I had moved to LA as a family. We had put the kids in school. I'd started pre-production. I have scammed the French into giving me the money to make the movie without a script, promising them great quality. But I didn't have any cast. So the pressure Did was Did you have on. a screenplay at that point? I had, I had various screenplays and every time someone said they had read the script, I always said, no, you haven't, because it doesn't exist. 
So there was always this kind of um, secret movie that I couldn't really, I didn't want to talk about. And then I was casting unknown actresses in Los Angeles because there was no one that had, I felt, the thing that the film needed. This, 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 this uniqueness that would make it authentic that everyone wanted to consume her. And um, I was getting pretty desperate. And then one day my wife started talking about Elle Fanning because she had seen one of her latest films. And <laughs> she was older than 10 in it. So, uh, so I was like, well, maybe that's her then. And then I, I set up, uh, I was able to get a meeting with Elle. And while I was waiting for the meeting to take place, her manager sends over a photo fashion shoot of Elle that she had done when she was like 15, I guess. And just instinctually, it was like, it, that's her. And, and so she came to the house, and she was 16. And, and it's kind of like, kind of a little bit awkward, because how do you talk to a 16-year-old? You know, I mean, my last conversation was with Ryan Gosling. How do I talk to, to this young lady? And so I, but I, I openly said, look, I, I believe there's a 16-year-old girl in every man, and I would like to live out my version. She was okay with that, and I said, all right. And I would like to make a horror film about beauty. And, and, and she was okay. She could dig that, because she wanted to make a movie for her generation about beauty, because she was 16. And I said, that's a perfect match. Let's do it together. And she was okay. But there was still not that clarity of what it was going to be, because obviously she's going to ask, well, what's the film about? Or can I see the screenplay? Well, that's too easy. What the film was going to be about, because I shoot in chronologically order, so everything obviously will change. And, and then I, I asked her, do, do you think you're beautiful? And she was you know, very taken back. And, and, and I, I said, no, seriously, do, do, do you think you're beautiful? And she said, yes. And then it was just like, oh my god, that's the movie. <laughs> the birth of narcissism. And then eight weeks later, we were shooting. Wow. So you discover the movie in essentially that moment, or those moments. You have a screenplay. You have an idea of what it's going to be. But eight weeks before shooting, click, you know what the movie is. And then everything changes from day one. <laughs> Do you rewrite from there? Very much because when you shoot in chronologically order, <coughs> the first couple of days you usually you, you try to find the balance in the characters and the performances, but then very quickly it starts to alternate, and then you just have to continue with the domino effect. And and one of uh, finding element factors was that um, I uh, originally the the movie had been protagonist, antagonist, which was Elle Fanning and Jenna Malone. That character Jenna Malone plays. But then I had taken the Jenna Malone character and made it into three characters with Jenna Malone, Abby Lee, and Bella Heathcote, who would each kind of represent archetypes of beauty. So there was Abby Lee, the supermodel. There was Bella, who cosmetically alternated her, her beauty. And there was Jenna Malone, who was all about inner beauty, the, the more complex, as we can say, even though shallowness is equally as complex. So it was a very complex spectrum. 
and beauty is an opinion that everyone very quickly will argue about, strangely enough. And, and so the, the, follow, the film was going to follow Jesse and then it was going to continue and so forth with all these characters simultaneously. And then uh, um, um, it got time to do one of the scenes in the film and that scene changed everything. And then I had to f rewrite, uh, reconstruct the whole second half, but only within two weeks while I was still shooting. So it's like, you know, catching something that's like, like falling through your hands as liquid. But it's very exciting. I, I love fear. Most, most filmmakers don't work like that. And most filmmakers probably don't like fear in that way. I, I think it's the essence of creativity. It's, it's beautiful. It's frightening. And it's terrible to be around other people. <laughs> but uh, uh, it's, 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 what, it's what I love about creativity. It's that constant free fall. It's like, in a way, an infant doing a drawing. It's first thing, yeah. So you're... Uh, more than uh, content, or at least you can contain the mutations and work with the mutations rather than someone who might be going, oh my God, this film's go going out of control. Um, let's talk about the, uh, the soundtrack, because the soundtrack to the movie is incredibly important, I think, and it's also uh, quite amazing. <laughs> um, what was your um, approach to that? What was when you were working with the um, uh, Cliff? Uh, what was what was your sort of mandate there? Well, I I, I um, there's two people around me that I always work with. Um, one is Matt Newman, the editor, and then it's Cliff Martinez, the composer. And and we, s those are the first people that I call and talk about what I think I would like to do, and then we continue to talk about it. And with Cliff, um, music was so important for this film because it was it had to have a sense of unreality, but still be focused in a reality. So I made every image almost uh, um, synthetic. I, I, I love digital. I think it's, it's my favorite <coughs> image. But I had, I had these old lenses made with, that the photographer made that we were able to put on that gave it diffusion and then, then I said to Cliff, and, and all the music needs to be completely unorganic, equally as synthetic as the images. So it would be like venturing into a fantasy world. Um, do, you, did you, do you explain themes with him, like narcissism and shallowness and things like that? No, I just said to Cliff, I wanted to make a movie about women, and he was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, maybe we should uh, watch a clip from the film in case, uh, I'm sure. Uh, how many people have seen the film? First of all, let's talk about Alessandro Nivola, who's terrific in this movie. Um, and then, um, which I think people um, don't get, they, is, is your sense of humor, because I find that there's uh, wonderful pieces of humor in this film that I, that I think people miss. I'm very funny. <laughs> I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, which was a terrible acting school in, in Midtown Manhattan. It really was. And um, <coughs> I, I, I was told by one of the acting teachers that I had a great sense of humor. <laughs> this is what I'm talking about. Let's talk Alessandro then. 
Well, um, Alison Navola uh, was actually auditioning for another uh, character in the movie. But because he was doing a play, he couldn't make the dates work because it was all in chronologically order. But he was so good that I asked him if we could maybe take another character in the film and make that a bigger character. And that would be then this designer character. And, and, and he agreed, <coughs> which was great, because it, it was a wonderful experience to work with him. And, and, and a lot of the dialogue essentially was like me improvising on it, and then we would write it down, which, which was very funny. He says a lot of very funny things. He does, he does. Um, uh, I'm going to circle back a little bit because we were uh, something you mentioned there made me think about um, femininity and, and not the exploration because you weren't a scientist, but uh, uh, just the idea of it because you've got two female writers on this film. You've got a female DP, which is fairly rare. Um, obviously, there's women throughout the film. Um, can you talk about And I think from what I heard, there's a lot of a female crew on this, which is, is fairly rare as well. Can you talk about that and how that impacts the movie? And, and well, I, I, I love women. I think women are so much more advanced than men, and, and I love being around women a lot more. And um, I'm controlled by women at home, and I submit <laughs> to that very happily. Um, so, um, uh, the, see, I wanted to make a movie where men had no function. <laughs> and um, it was like, what's beyond feminism? And so I designed all the male m characters as the girlfriends of other movies. You know, they're just like, they're plot devices. <laughs> <coughs> Which unfortunately is true a lot of the times. So the joke that Ellen and I always had was, here comes the girlfriends and they're gonna come in and explain the scene and they're gonna walk out again. <laughs> and then halfway through the film, even though there were scenes with them later on, I eliminated them because I had no interest not in them, but the film had no interest in, in its DNA. It, it solely just became about women. Um, I want to talk, uh, I guess, a little bit also about your female DP, because this movie's gorgeous. Um, the images captured are stunning, and it reminds me as if uh, Gaspar Noé in a dance party met with Stanley Kubrick's uh, cinematographer and had some sort of mutation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, I, um, you know, I, um, I make very inexpensive movies, but it allows me complete control. But uh, in the last couple of years, I've been doing a lot of, uh, uh, so not a lot, but a few fashion campaigns, and you get to work with great photographers on that because they have the money. And and every time I would do something, these very high-end photographers, who I won't mention by name, would always say to me, oh my god, we're such fans, we would love to work with you. They're usually Europeans, so they speak in accents, but I'm not going to do that. And, and, and it was just like, you know, you know, these people are the masters of cinema. So I was like, oh wow, I'm in the club now. I can like call people and pull in favors. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so I'm in LA and I'm like, 
setting up this movie and 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 the casting is going pretty well because I got L um, and then uh, uh, Keanu agreed Keanu Reeves agrees to be in the movie and, and Abby Lee is I cast her and, and and it's it's really going good and 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 um, and so um, I <laughs> I call one of these photographers like great you know we're on you know we're gonna be shooting right after Christmas they're like oh fantastic fantastic <laughs> They can't, they're so excited. And I say, well, but it's just one thing. I mean, it only pays $3,000 a week. And they're like, oh, no, 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 it can't happen, can't happen. It's like, fuck. <laughs> I thought it was going to be so easy because, I mean, I'm supposed to be like a great visual filmmaker. And <laughs> <laughs> so they start turning me down. And after like the sixth photographer turning me down and I'm starting to go to like up and coming people in LA and I'm still getting no's, I'm like, I don't know what to do. And like, it's easier for me to cast a movie star than it is to get a fucking DP. <laughs> and we had the same problem with production design because I had, had, sh had shaved the budget so low because I wanted, you know, seven weeks of shoot. So all the departments were really, you know, condensed. Uh, and, and people would say, but I don't have money for this and I have money for that. I'm saying, yes, but isn't that great? That's creativity. Then we'll imagine it will come up with it. And they're like, come on, let's go do it. And no, 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 not possible. So uh, after my seventh probably being turned down by this photographer who I'm trying to sell on the phone. I'm like trying to sell them on the movie. Uh, the agent of that photographer calls back and says, uh, uh, you know, and I go, oh, wasn't that great with that guy? And it sounds like he's gonna do it. He's like, no, he's, he's, he's not gonna do it. All right. And he goes, but, but I have, what about Natasha Bray? And I said, I, 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 I don't know who that is. But at that time I was looking at anyone, like, like they could be, from Uzbekistan calling something I couldn't care less. I was willing to meet with anyone. And so he says, well, I said, is she free? Yes. Is she in LA? Yes. Good. Can you send me a link and then I'll meet her tomorrow. And then they send me a link and her commercial reel and things are there. And I, I didn't, hadn't seen the rover which she had photographed and I didn't have time to do it. So I just saw a something she had done with Lynn Ramsey for the Olympics in, 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 in the UK and, and had a very, you know, very film school style of black and white and, and very, 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 um, you know, very artistic. But certainly somebody that had a good eye for, 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 for contrast because um, uh, I like to frame, but I'm, I'm colorblind, so she had a very good sense of, of, of contrast. And it was a black and white thing. So anyways, and Natasha comes over the next day and she's not a very tall girl. Um, and, and, and we're talking and I, and I got a really good feel for her, like instinctually. And, and I feel that bringing a woman on as a photographer about women would just be probably a really smart idea. So I go after about like the usual chit chat. I go, okay, let me be honest with you. Would you work for $3,000 a week? And she goes, uh, uh, isn't that something you should talk to my agent? I said, look, just fuck that. Would you work for $3,000 a week? She goes, uh, yeah. I go, great, you're hired. <laughs> thinking there for a second about, you know, I almost wanted to stop you, you're colorblind and yet your films are extremely colorful. Um, 
how does that work? And also, let's talk about the color red, because red is just kind of everything in your films, especially this one. Well, I, I love color, and I love a lot of it, and I can't get enough. And when you're colorblind, apparently, I'm told, I can't see mid-colors. So I want everything to be more colorful, and so I can feel them. Uh, it's a little tricky for people like Natasha, who would go on and talk about all the various color palettes that she's doing, and I'm like, that's great, I can't see it. So you've <laughs> got to make it so I can see it. And that's what's beautiful in post-production nowadays. You can do so many things in post-production. That's really where I find the look of the movie. But she had the elements, of course, there. Um, but yeah, I mean, colorblind is a beautiful thing to have, and I wish everyone had it. Um, I, I wanted to go back to, I love the way you, you speak about the invention of the film. And um, it almost strikes me as um, sometimes titles inspire you, um, and that's maybe the film or something. Um, I remember I actually spoke to you a long time ago around Valhalla Rising, and you had said, I have a film that I want to do called Only God Forgives, but I'm not quite sure what it is. And it almost reminds me of what you're talking about now. I have an idea, I have a title, and then you maybe just say, I don't know, how does that work? Well, it's like kind of like, inspiration can come from so many different ways, at least in my world, that it can be me doing the dishes in, a, in, in the mundane way that I live, and I go, oh, that's, that, that could be an interesting idea, or could I see something, or I, I, I hear something, and, <clears throat> and then it starts to kind of slowly evolve into, and then sometimes it could be a title or a word game, like the Neon Demon title was, because I kept on not having a title for this script that didn't exist for this movie that no one knows if it was going to happen or not. <laughs> And, and I, the title I came up with one night when I was playing a word game, because I'm, I'm also very dyslexic, so it had to be words I could both read and spell. So Neon, I, I love because it, it reminds me of my youth in New York. I grew up in, in New York in the 80s. And, 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 and there's also some science fiction feel to it, but there's also a sense of strong retro. It's, so, it's organic in a way, even though it's synthetic. And then I thought, demon, because it had to have a horror feel, because it had to be a horror film. Uh, and then the neon demon. <laughs> so that was like, that was pretty groovy. <laughs> then I asked my wife, and she, she thought it was pretty cool. I like the idea of neon being sort of, I guess what you're saying, like futuristic and retro at the same time, maybe like something like Blade Runner or something. Yeah, I mean, or, or, or that whole, I mean, there was a movie called Liquid Sky. I don't know if anyone's ever seen, which is a, like a really beautiful film about uh, um, the, 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 the kind of no new wave, no hope, like post-punk, pre-romantic punk scene in, in New York that, that was made in the early 80s. It had a lot of neon in it. And, and, and I always remember liking all those strange rectangular things and, and, and the movement around of them. And, and you can kind of look at them in strange ways. And, and they, they had lines and things like that. that. I thought that was pretty groovy. Was that kind of a, was that a formi formative influence for you, like No Wave and, and New York music at that time? Well, I was a huge club kid. 
So I, I would, I would, all my life was about going to clubs. And, and, and I was like 15, and, and I had a curfew at midnight because I had good, healthy parents that loved me. But I had friends who had evil parents who didn't care about them, and they could stay out all night. So I hung out with them, <laughs> said I was sleeping at their house, and we would go to, you know, like Save the Robots, when it was an after hours club, or I remember Danceteria on 21st Street, and Palladian opened, and, you know, all those. That, that I always, that kind of, of, of science fiction sensuality of walking into this alternate world where there was no gender, there was no sexuality specifically other than whatever you were into and and there was any chemicals you want. I never did drugs, I was always too afraid of them. So I didn't get drunk until I was 17 when I came back to Copenhagen. And so I, I was always a voyeur in that world. I didn't get a girlfriend until I was 24. So I, I, I've always liked the idea of, of, of looking, of seeing. Not I feel like I feel like you're explaining Neon Demon, <laughs> and then I feel like you're also explaining all your films just based on uh, the club experience. Mm -hmm. I can think of the idea of you walking into a club, the music is throbbing, the lights mm -hmm. are going, and that's. Oh, it was thrilling. It was it was always being, in, and especially when you were a club kid, you were in the elite club, you were part of the pack, you know. Right. When you see uh, Neon Demon, this will <laughs> really uh, coalesce. Um, and, and so did you, when you were in New York, you, that, you know, those formative years, did you, was that like early 80s, the, the late 70s, sort of scuzzy New York, the genre films and all that, did you get to take in that stuff as well? I was way too young. I came into New York in 78 when I was eight years old, so I didn't experience 42nd Street, I didn't experience mm. that whole, but I did remember that like, my mother took me to see Hard Day's Night down at Bleecker Street Cinema, and I do have these kind of memories of, and then I've, what's great about New York back then was there was so much alternative culture and there was so much going on. It's, well, as in corporate America, it was still dirty and filthy and, and, and degenerate, but it was also beautiful and exciting. And, and, and I, I, I'm so happy to have experienced that because it really defined who I am and also the notion that I don't want to be normal. Fuck that, you know. Uh, What's so great about that? You know, it was a great, wonderful world into the counterculture because my schooling was dyslexia, which is really embarrassing and terrible to go through. And, 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 and I was able to, to, uh, to, that world embraced me and I embraced it. Everything that was counterculture, I was, I was into. And of course, the music scene at that time was very exciting. It was post, you know, punk, but it was still a lot of glam and it had an influence from the, the British New Romantics were coming in, but a lot of stuff was still going on in the musical scene in New York at that time. Um, did you, I mean, I, I guess, you know, you answered that, so, but later in life, um, you, you know, it seems like genre is, is very much your thing. Did you get to explore some of those films? Like, I feel like William Lustig and those kinds of things would be very much up your alley. <laughs> well, I know uh, Bill Lustig, because I very much like a movie called, called Maniac. Um, but uh, I, I, um, I loved everything that was rebellious in terms of genre because it was the only way to piss off my mother. Yeah. See, my mother and stepfather were like really well brought up, Scandinavian, high-end hippies, which means that let's share just not my money. And <laughs> so I grew up in a, in, a, in a penthouse, like duplex, but with a very socialistic mentality. 
and the only thing that could really rebel because musically I couldn't do anything because my mother had photographed like Jimi Hendrix and Miles Davis so there was nothing there and politically they've gone through the whole socialistic movement of they're enlightened yeah you know Bernie Sanders and shit so <laughs> um, so it, it, the only way to really make them angry was was violent genre movies like like you know I remember my mother freaked out when I kind of had 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 manipulated my nanny into buying Escape from New York and VHS <laughs> and uh, and um, so they didn't like that and then Ronald Reagan so I began a long long fetish for Ronald Reagan <laughs> since I was 14 <laughs> okay uh, how does that manifest itself in film then well, because creativity is, in a way, pure capitalism. It's unregulated, unadulterated insanity. And the more you try to control it, the less interesting it actually is. I also want to talk about a little bit about the, um, without uh, giving too much away, the sort of engulfing, enrapturing quality of, of, uh, of the film that's even, in a way, um, maybe a little vampiric, people wanting desiring things from you, the quality that you feel throughout the entire film. Can you talk a little bit about that? How? <laughs> um, what was your aim with that? I thought it could be interesting <clears throat> with the obsession that we have about beauty has only gone up. It's never going to go down only gone up. It's the one stock that's never gone down. But the longevity of beauty continues to shrink and it's becoming younger and younger. So I thought, well, what's going to happen when that circle is completed? You know, wh what's, what's going to take place? And the only thing I could think of was consuming. And, and, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. Um, uh, you've always talked about sex as violence or violence as sex. I don't remember the exact quote. And I feel like it's uh, almost culminated here. Um, it, it, was that... Uh, was that an aim as well, like taking those, those themes? I, what, how, do, how do you see it? I forget that the quote is sex is violence or? Well, I don't know the quote quote, but I can say that the, the, the act of, of, of um, violence is really more effective when you sexualize it. So, but sex and death is of course the essentials to our creativity. You know, it boils down to those two very pure meanings then we can define it and, and infiltrate it but it all comes back if you look at the renaissance if you look at creativity in, 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 in paintings and in sculpturing you know the skull next to a pair of roses was a very common motif especially in the modernists and so um, I am um, I've I very much try to concentrate it narrow down to essential thing of of well sex and violence is what our primal instincts are based on even before it's intellectualized how primal can you then create from 
so that the act of creativity becomes an act of violation. But it doesn't destroy you, it's meant to penetrate your mind in order to give you a reactionary experience. So it becomes a violent emotion, whether it's good or bad, I don't, that's, I don't fucking care, that's irrelevant to me. It's, we're beyond that. I mean, the future of entertainment is the ecosystem of the future of entertainment is completely, it has different rules than our previous ecosystem. You know, if you, if you look at, at entertainment as, as film, as a mass media, when it was invented as a, as an, as a, as a trick, it, it was invented as an experiment that became an artistic canvas that was consumed into mass media and became the first true mass entertainment. And it flourished creatively, but also flourished economically. And then it became controlled by very few people would control who made it, who distributed it, who was in it, who was allowed even to have an opinion about it, whether it was because out of moral judgments or out of the notion that there would be good or bad quality control. And that worked very well for a number of years and then television was invented. But television's pure function was essentially a financial possibility. Because with television came a whole new way of capitalizing us mass entertainment. And it continued to grow as a financial institution with creativity as a secondary choice. You had various revolutions throughout, but in the end it always came back to money. And then we had, of course, the invention of the VHS, which was the first time that the industry let loose its control. And control was given to the consumer. Con consumers could suddenly define length and speed. And then you had the DVD, which was the gold rush of entertainment, because suddenly what was no longer, what was considered like um, history and on like worth of nothing suddenly became profitable again. So it cannibalized on its origin. And then it ended through the perfection of the Hollywood machinery that dominates 90% of our industry in a wonderful way. You know, I love those movies, but it's to a perfect stock of m money interest. It's all it comes down to, essentially. I find that very fascinating, and I think it's very, very good at what it does. It's a wonderful investment of capitalists to regain more financial gain. But the origin of cinema has been kind of phased out slowly through that process, and that means that cinema has stagnated as an art form. But then we were lucky when anything does stagnation, a revolution happens and it was the digital revolution. And the digital revolution, which we're now seeing becoming the new canvas, it's now starting to become a perfect arena because we know that it's the reality. We have accepted the outcome of it and the, f and the effect it has on our old ecosystem so now we're going into this new ecosystem, but a lot of people are still trying to apply the same rules. And you can't, because the new system is the modernists versus the classics. 
and a new system, there is no regulation, even though you try to. There is no control, because everything is possible, everything is accessible. Opinions are oblivious, because there's an audience for everything. It, you can't, it, it's just become a mass noise. But what's beautiful about that, it has gone back to the origins of creativity, which is an act of movement. And in this world that is so beautiful, it's really not about what you do anymore. It's about what you stand for. So the essence of creativity has gone down to its primal instinct, which is just movement. And whether you like it or not, it doesn't matter. But if you react to it, that's what's going to move everything forward. You should teach. <laughs> um, I've really um, hogged Nicholas because I always find talking to him fascinating, but I think we have time for like one or two questions. Yes? To like uh, specific influences that you had like from maybe other movies or directors or Well, of course, I'm a child of cinema. So when I grew up, I watched everything under the moon. And, you know, we all steal. I mean, if anyone tells you they're not stealing, they're lying. So, we everyone steals, you know. And I, I think that I, I became very interested in the idea of installation, but I never, I don't, I'm not a big museum guy or anything, but I, I thought it was the idea of, of music and movement became what I'm mostly interested in. Um, and and uh, um, I, I, um, I, I just stay at home and, 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 and I don't drink alcohol and, and, and I, you know, by the time the kids are in bed by nine o'clock and my wife goes to bed around 9.30 cause she's an, an A person, she wakes up really early at night or in, in the morning and it kind of, those are my hours of solitude and, and I, that's, you know, I can, I'll walk around, I'll sit down maybe, I'll, I'll watch the news or, and then usually that's, I get some kind of an, an, an idea. And, and, and I've stopped trying to figure out where it comes from because, you know, it's, it's, it's that, it, it finally, it, does, it doesn't help it. But, you know, um, with, uh, uh, um, with, when we did this movie, when I was trying to explain the idea of, of, of a woman about, film about women, to Elle, I, I gave her a Valley of the Dolls to watch. You know, as I said, this, this is a very interesting example of a film that, that, that walks many lines. Um, and then I think, and then I gave her a movie Night Tide uh, by Curtis Harrington, which is a movie um, that, uh, with Dennis Hopper, a film that I love so much that I, I bought the rights to it uh, for my private collection. Um, I, I, I'm a collector, I, I love to collect things. I collect toys and Are you gonna put it out? Stuff. What? Are you gonna put it out again? Well, I don't, uh, maybe. Right now, it's just, it's just nice to own it. <laughs> um, one more question. Yes. Uh, what informs you most, would you say, during your creative process to help you make the choices that you make? Um, that I leave myself open to complete, constant failure, so it forces me to rely only on my instincts and I make every movie as if it's gonna be my last movie. Because if it's gonna be my last movie, they weren't gonna get me. 
That's pretty perfect. Um, thank you so much for coming out. Thanks to Nicholas Winding Refn for being here. Thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>